0: Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Proverbs, chapter 4. Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. For I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me and he said to me, take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. Hold on to instruction, do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever.
1: All right, welcome to Exilic. Uh, it's been a minute for me uh, in terms of being up here, so if we haven't met yet, my name is Aaron. Uh, I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. And two Sundays ago, I got this emergency text uh, from my friend in L.A. who who is also a pastor on Sunday night, and he texted me, help my nephew, his cousin and their friend are stranded in JFK, and the next flight to LA isn't until Wednesday. Can you help? Uh, And apparently, if you're not 21 years old, you can't get a hotel in New York City by yourselves. And so he was like, is there anything that you can do? So I texted back and I was like, dude, just just have them stay with us. So uh, they come Sunday night and um, just like that, Hannah and I become parents to three teenagers overnight all the way until Wednesday. And as we got to know them and they got to know us, um, we found out that they had just graduated from high school and they wanted to spend a quick summer here uh, before they started university. And this was probably totally unsolicited, but somehow Hannah and I started giving advice to them about college. (laughs) And um, you know, as we were doing that, um, and I also—I uh, just turned forty-four a couple weeks ago—and I began to think to myself, you know, if I could go back in time uh, to my twenty-year-old self, what's the best piece of advice I would give to my twenty-year-old self? Or if I could go back in time to my thirty-year-old self, what's the best piece of advice I would give to my thirty-year-old self? Forty-year-old self, definitely colonoscopy is one of them. Fifty. I can't comment on 50 yet, but Pastor Gene can. Um, but I'm curious if the, if the tables were turned, <laughs> if the tables were turned, and you could go back in time to your 20-year-old self, your 30-year-old self, your 40-plus-year-old self, what is the best piece of advice you would give to that person? Well, if you've never read uh, the book of Proverbs before, um, The Proverbs are written by several different authors, uh, but the one who wrote most of Proverbs is King Solomon. And the perspective from which he's writing these Proverbs is as a father to his children. So he's very much writing with a father's heart for the next generation. And it says in verses 1 to 3, listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. For I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished uh, by my mother. And when you read the Proverbs, not just chapter four, but most of the Proverbs, uh, Solomon and the other writers, uh, they write lots of different pieces of advice uh, to their readers but there does seem to be one thing in particular that he wants everyone to gain, have, possess, and acquire. Can you think of what that could be? If someone were to ask you, what is the most important? I mean, we're talking about UFOs in Congress now, right? If aliens landed into New York City and they asked us, what is the most important thing that I can possess in life? what would you say? Romantic love? That's a good answer. Money? Financial freedom? Comfort and stability? A non-anxious life? What is the most important thing any person can acquire in life? And what Solomon and all of the other writers would say is this, the most important thing you can possess in life is wisdom. And if you read with me verse 5 and 7, it says this, Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. That's the beginning of wisdom, that you need wisdom in your life. Now, the question for us now is this, what is wisdom exactly? Charles Spurgeon writes this, Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. So just because you kill it on your LSATS, SAT scores, it doesn't mean that you're wise. To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. There is no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom." So this is how uh, Spurgeon defines uh, wisdom, which is why, and, and in many ways what he's saying is this, you can have knowledge without wisdom, but you cannot have wisdom without knowledge. Can I say that again? You can have knowledge without wisdom, but you cannot have wisdom without knowledge. So that's what Spurgeon is saying. My former professor defined wisdom this way, wisdom is the ability to skillfully navigate through life. So that's wisdom. Keller defines wisdom this way. Wisdom is knowing what to do with the 80% of life where moral rules don't apply. So 20% of life, what he's saying is that moral rules do apply. Is it good to take hardcore drugs? Probably not. That's an easy decision. Is it it wise to do prostitution? Probably not. Is it wise to hurt a six-month-old baby? Probably not. That's where the moral rules do apply. But you know what, in 80% of life, should I date this person or not date that person? Should I take this job or not take that job? Should I move to LA or stay in New York? These are not moral decisions. And that's 80% of life. And so this is why it behooves us to have wisdom as we navigate through this life. So that's what wisdom is. Why is it so important? Verses 4, 13, 22, Solomon writes this. Then he taught me and he said to me, take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. For they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. And so what what Solomon is saying here is that a life... Filled with wisdom leads to a flourishing life, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, but a life that lacks wisdom is a slow kind of death, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and physically. And so the question that I want to ask to all of us today is this, how do you know then if you're living a life of wisdom or a life of folly? How do you know the difference? Well, I am, um, I mentioned I just turned 44, I might be one of the only middle-aged dudes that I know at this point that hasn't been severely bitten by the golf bug. So there is not a lot that I know about golf. I know what a birdie is. I know what a par three is. But I have no idea what a double bogey is or a triple bogey. And maybe you don't either. So let's say we, we go golfing, okay? And you experience somehow like crazy beginner's luck, and you get a hole-in-one. And so you get your golf scorecard, and you don't know what a hole-in-one is, but you do know what a touchdown is. So you give yourself plus six on your golf scorecard. Now, what do you think all the, the golf you know, veterans would say to you? Dude, what are you doing? <laughs> this, this isn't football. I know it feels like a touchdown, but that's not six points. You're using the wrong metrics. You're playing with the wrong scorecard. This is not the game of football. This is the game of life or game of golf. Now, when it comes to the game of life, could it be possible that we're playing with the wrong metrics? Could it be possible that you're playing with the wrong scorecard? Could it be possible that you're killing it in life, but you're really losing in life? And how do you tell the difference? And I think a part of the reason why there's so much confusion about which metrics are right, which scorecards are right, is because at the end of the day, all of us here, we are all children of a philosopher named Jean-Paul Sartre. Now, who is Jean-Paul Sartre? I want you to teleport yourself all the way to Paris for a moment. And imagine it's 1945. In a large room like this, with hundreds of people gathered together, to hear a philosopher named Jean-Paul Sartre Speak, and much like Bertrand Russell, just a little bit away in England, Jean-Paul Sartre also had a strong distaste for Christianity. And in his lecture that he gives, that it, that is called "Existentialism is a Humanism," which you can find on Google for free, and it's not that hard to read. Sartre gives this analogy of a pen knife. We don't really use pen knives today, so let me just contemporize it for us, okay? Imagine you wanna go on a whitewater rafting trip, but you have to bring your own oar. So you happen to be at church on Sunday at Exilic, you're gonna go whitewater rafting tomorrow, Monday, and you need an oar, and you see this nice Martin HD 28 guitar right here. And it's made of wood, it's got a long handle, that you can row, row, row your boat with. It seems pretty light. This would make, actually, the perfect oar. But then what do you think all of the guitar aficionados would say? What are you, crazy? This is a Martin HT-20. That's not an oar. The essence of this guitar is to play music. It's not to, it doesn't exist to, to paddle water with. The essence of it, the reason for it, the purpose for it is music, and that's why it exists. And so Sartre would say, the essence of something, the reason for something, the purpose of something precedes its existence. And when you think like that, the essence of something preceding its existence, Sartre would say, that's Christianity, that's religion. And so Sartre would say, but I don't don't like that. So what Sartre did is he flipped it. He said that our essence, our reason, our purpose doesn't precede our existence, what he said on the next slide, our essence doesn't precede our existence. He said that actually, no, our existence precedes our essence. Now, what is the difference between the two? And that is what he was lecturing about in 1945. And I want to read you a quote from his lecture in Paris. And Sartre writes this, what do we mean by saying that existence precedes essence or reason or purpose. We mean that man first of all exists, encounters himself, surges up in the world, and defines himself afterwards. It is because to begin with, he is nothing. He will not be anything until later. And then he will be what he makes of himself. Thus, there is no human nature because there is no God to have a conception of it. Man simply is. Man is nothing else but that which he makes of himself. That is the first principle of existentialism. And I would say, by and large... Our culture, in the city, in America, and in the West, our heartbeat, our pulse is largely uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. The idea that we just simply exist. I don't know how we got here. We're just here. (laughs) And every man for himself, y'all, everyone, just try to figure out the meaning of life on your own. But what Christianity would say is, no, you are made intentionally with purpose and reason, with inherent dignity, value, and worth, because God is the one that made us. The essence of who you are as a child of God, that's why you exist. And so from a biblical framework, a wise life then, the right scorecard then, is living a life attached to our creator and maker, and being concerned with the things that our maker and creator is concerned about. An unwise life is a life that is detached and unattached from God, and you live your life according to your own agenda. But when you think about every Disney movie, every Pixar movie, my girls just started getting into uh, Ameri- uh, high school musical. Uh, sees, uh, the second one, I gotta go my own way. That's Jean-Paul's Sartre. I gotta go my own, I gotta figure out my life for myself, my reason, my purpose, my essence. All my. S- I'm just here and I just figure things out as I go. But Christianity said, no, you're here for a reason. The essence of who you are is so important, and that's why you exist. It's entirely, entirely different. Peter is one of my favorite characters in my Bible, and part of the reason why um, he's one of my favorite characters in the Bible is because he's always putting his foot in his mouth. And when Peter meets Jesus for the very first time, he's like in awe because here, here is Jesus, a fellow Jew, who, who has all this power. And you have to keep in mind, historically, the Jews are being oppressed by the Romans, right? But here is his modern-day, like, Moses, MLK, LeBron James, who can do all this power. And he sees Jesus, like, liberate the sick, the disease. He, he's overthrowing systems. He's overthrowing Phariseeism, legalism, tradition, the social elite not caring for the poor. He's like liberating things. And Peter's thinking, this is our time. This is our moment. This is what we've been all waiting for as a people. And then, as he gets to know Jesus more and more, (laughs) Jesus all of a sudden starts talking about, guys, but I actually have to die. And in Mark 8, 31 to 34, Jesus says this, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again, he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And I love the rich imagery here, because Peter doesn't want to embarrass Jesus, his rabbi, so he's like, he took him aside, he's like, hey, Jesus, can I I just get a quick second with you for a moment? Like, dude, you're like 31 years old. Why do you keep talking about dying all the time? What is this obsession with your own death? Like, if we're going to see a revolution, if we're going to see a movement take place, we need you alive for like the next 20, 30 years. Like, you you can't, you need to be quiet with all this dying stuff. And in verse 33 to 36, Jesus responds to Peter this way. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? It becomes very obvious here that for Peter, his agenda was playing checkers, but for Jesus, his agenda was playing chess. Peter wanted to liberate his own people. Jesus came to liberate the world. For Peter, the greatest enemy were the Romans. For Jesus, the greatest enemy was sin and death that the Romans were also entangled by. Peter had one way, one metric, one scorecard for living life, but Jesus also had a scorecard and a metric for living life as well. And I wonder if Jesus were here right now and if he were to have a one-on-one with you at a cafe and he asked you the question, Jane Doe, John Doe, do you have in mind the concerns of God, or do you only have in mind human concerns? What do you think he would say to you? How would you respond? Maybe you just moved to New York and you're super ambitious. You want to climb the corporate ladder, make a ton of money, become an influencer, all that stuff, none of which are bad. Is that your only concern in life? Or are you also concerned about the things of God? Maybe you're single and your only concern in life is I gotta get married, not a bad thing. But is that your only concern in life? Or are you also concerned about the things of God? Maybe you're a new parent and the only thing that you're thinking about is feeding times, nap times, buying the best baby gadgets. Is that the only thing that you're concerned about in life? Or are you also concerned about the things of God? Maybe you're a pastor and you're obsessed with growing a big church. Is that the only thing that you care about? Or do you actually care about growing a deep church, which is what God is concerned about? Are you living by the right scorecard as you think about your life? Or are you living by the wrong scorecard? Are you living by the right metrics or are you living by the wrong metrics? Now the question is, If a wise life is a life that is attached to God and is concerned about the things that God is concerned about, how do we increase in our wisdom? And in uh, chapter 9, verse 10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Fear of the Lord here doesn't mean being afraid of God so much as being in awe of God. And the beginning of wisdom is there. Just simply being in awe of who God is. Um, I, was having a, uh, I was having a cigar by myself on my rooftop. And, um, you know, if you've ever smoked a great cigar before, it can go for like hour, hour and a half. And one of the things that I like to do is I like to pray while I'm on my rooftop. And, and no, I wasn't looking for UFOs, but I was, I was looking up to the starry heavens above, a God who is supreme over all things, natural and supernatural, physical and metaphysical. Just was there for like an hour, hour and a half, just praying and being still. Because it is the fear of the Lord, being in awe of who God is, that is really the beginning of wisdom. Which is why in Psalm 46.10, it says, be still and know that I am God. And oftentimes, it's because we are not still that we forget who God is, and that eventually leads to a life of folly. And so four spiritual practices that I really want to challenge you to practice in your own life, they all start with the letter S. And they are this. Especially in New York City, practicing stillness versus hurriedness. And there is a difference between being busy and being hurried. Hurried is much more of an interior state of emotion, where you feel like you're inside constantly in a rush. You need to pump the brakes and slow down and learn how to be still. Practicing silence in the midst of all the noise. Practicing solitude in the midst of all the distractions that are around us. And obviously reading, meditating on scripture versus social media you need to resist all of these things that are pulling you away because what we're seeing in our culture is a kind of reverse exorcism. You know what exorcism is? Is when you're trying to cast a demon out of a person. You know what reverse exorcism is? When our culture is casting the Jesus inside of you, outside of you. Casting the spirit of God in you, out of you. So we need to practice these things if we're going to know he is God and be in awe of who he is. And oftentimes, the reason why these things are very hard for us is because these four S's come at a great cost. In verse 7, it says, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, though it's not free. It costs all you have. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. And what will it cost you? It will cost you screen time on your phone. And that sounds so juvenile, but that is actually a great challenge for all of us. It will cost you to go hungry from your insatiable addiction and appetite for dopamine hits. It will cause you to maybe not spend time with that same group of friends so that you can live a life of wisdom. Maybe it will cost you pain because sometimes the only way of growing wise is in the school of hard knocks. It's going to cost you something, but at the end of it is a life of wisdom. The most beautiful people in the world are the ones with scars on their back from all the pain that they've stewarded well in their life. And when you think about Jesus Christ, it cost him more than anyone in life. And when you think about who Jesus is, on the one hand, he was 100% God. On the other hand, he was 100% human. He wasn't 50-50. He was one hundred percent divine, one hundred percent human. In Luke two fifty two, it says this: and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. So, on the one hand, he is ultimately wise. On the other hand, because he is human, he's growing in his wisdom. Just like he had to grow to learn how to read, walk, talk, he also had to learn wisdom. And you can't become wise until you become old. You can grow old without becoming wise, but you cannot grow wise without becoming old. Does that make sense? You can grow old without becoming wise, but you cannot grow wise without becoming old. This is why you'll never meet a 10 year old sage, you know, rubbing his mustache on top of like some Himalayan mountain, giving us, you know, sound advice. You just haven't experienced enough at 10. And there are certain things that Jesus had to experience to grow in wisdom. However, here's the parenthetical note: the experiences that Jesus had to experience were not based on failure, like us. He was sinless from the time that he, he was born, he was conceived. So, how did Jesus learn from experiences? Uh, experience then. I, I don't know who said this, but someone once said this: a wise man learns by the experience of others. An ordinary man learns by his own experience. A fool learns by nobody's experience. How did Jesus grow in wisdom and stature? He learned by the experience of others. How do we learn? (laughs) We usually gain wisdom because we fall on our own face and the mistakes that we've made, right? But a truly wise person, which is what I want for all of us to be, are the kind of people that not only learn from our own mistakes, but we also learn from the experience uh, of others as well. But there was one very foolish thing that Jesus did do in his life. And the one big foolish thing that Jesus did do with his life was he loved us. The thing about love is this, if you've ever experienced love before, Love can sometimes make you do some crazy, irrational things. And because Jesus loved us, despite our foolishness, and despite not wanting to be attached to him, he foolishly attached himself to us. In fact, he loved us so foolishly, despite our sin, he loved us so much that he would actually die for us in the midst of our foolishness. But in his wisdom, he did that. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. From the very beginning of time, he had a reason for our essence, preceding our existence. And he had a plan for all of those things before any of life began. And when you realize that this is what he has done for us, and if Jesus Christ really is the source and fountain of all wisdom, and if we are the product of the people we spend the most time with, what would be the wise thing for you to do with your life? Be around wise people, and there is no one wiser than him. And so, Pete Schizero lists some practices that we can do to live a wise life near the fountain of wisdom. Success or wisdom, is remaining in communion with Jesus throughout each day, not just Sunday morning. Success or wisdom is embracing the season God has in me, be it fall, winter, spring, or summer. Success is resisting temptations of the evil one. Success or wisdom is trusting in Jesus. Success is receiving God's limits as a gift, especially to all the yes people. Success is experiencing ongoing transformation in my life. Success is being present with the people around me, seeing their beauty and their value. And as you begin to spend more time with Jesus, which is the wisest thing any of us could do, you yourself become wise. As you get to know God, you get to know yourself. And as you get to know yourself, you begin to probe your own heart and ask yourself another set of questions about yourself, like this. Why am I always in a hurry? Why am I so impatient? What is that anxiety all about that I'm feeling? Why am I so angry and why did I get so defensive yesterday? Why do I tend to avoid conflicts? Why am I replaying that conversation over and over again in my head? Why am I perpetually unsatisfied with everything? Why am I afraid right now? Why do I always feel left out? And as you get to know God, you get to know yourself, and as you get to know yourself, you begin asking these hard questions about yourself. And as you do these things, you grow wiser and wiser and wiser. I want to close with um, a text (laughs) that I got from another uh, pastor friend a a few weeks ago, and I asked him if I could share this. But, um, you know, something, something happens when you, hit your 40s and 50s, and your friends now slowly start getting stuff. And sometimes that stuff is stuff like cancer. And one of my friend's wives um, uh, has cancer right now. And so he texted us uh, something uh, leading up to the um, uh, surgery that she was getting. And, um, and I asked him if I could share this, because I thought it was really wise. And I'll close with this. He said, uh, as my spouse, my wife and I, we've been going through this season of unexpected suffering, we've experienced a lot of emotions and feelings. And when I have some quiet moments alone, I have pondered questions in my mind. Naturally, the questions, why is this happening to my wife, Why is this happening to us? God, why did you allow this? have crossed my mind. But those questions don't stay on my mind. Rather, another set of questions stay and linger on my mind. Those questions are, how can anyone go through something this scary without faith and hope in a God who loves them? who cares for them, who is with them, and who has promised to heal them, if not partially in this life, then fully in the life to come at the resurrection of the body. How can anyone go through something like this alone without a church family that loves them, prays for them, weeps with them, cares for them, and supports them? And it makes me thankful beyond words that my wife and I are Christians and that we belong to a wonderful and loving church family. By the goodness and grace of God, what stays and lingers in our hearts is gratitude for God and for His comforting love that comes through you, His people. Fear and anxiety come and go, but thanksgiving and a peace that surpasses understanding stay. That's wisdom. And my hope and prayer for every one of us as we experience this journey called life is that all of us would grow. To become more and more wise. But the source and the fountain of all wisdom is him, not in anything else. Let's pray together. Father, uh, give us um, the wisdom to have the right metrics in life, the right scorecard, not the wrong scorecard, the wrong metrics. Because the truth of the matter is we could really be killing it in life and yet at the same time losing in life. And so give us eyes to see, the ears to hear, the heart that desires, the feet that move in the right path, in the right direction, to live a life that is attached to you, is concerned about the things that you are concerned with, that desires what you desire, that loves what you love. In your name I pray, amen.